Take your Bibles and turn back to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8 today, as we look at this very powerful passage of Scripture. Sometimes when I'm teaching something that's very intense and uh, complicated, uh, and uh, maybe a theological issue or something else, and uh, after going through a lot of stuff, I realize, um, you know, people are getting kind of maybe lost in the weeds a little bit. It's getting a little bit complicated, a little intense. And so I might step back and say, uh, let's take a moment here and capture what we've said. Let's rehearse all the words that we're talking about here. Let's, let's just uh, summarize this in, in a very simple way. And I'll do that on a fairly regular basis when we're going through something difficult, especially going through the book of Hebrews, because almost every sermon we're having is pretty intense and pretty heavy. It's one of the heaviest, if not the heaviest book in all Scripture. And so it's good to rehearse and go back to what, what things are being said. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here in verse 1. He has led us on some real heavy stuff, very, very important stuff. And he, maybe he realizes that some of his readership is kind of getting a little bit lost here. It may be a little overdone for them or a little heavy for them. And so he takes a breather. He backs off and he says this. Now the main point in what is being said is this. So he's going to summarize the main point. And as he does so, he gives this summary statement that uh, is telling us all that he's been talking about for seven chapters now. And it also launches us into what he wants to say in the rest of, of the book of Hebrews. The main point is this, he says. And then he goes off to some subjects. Now, here, here's what's coming up. What's coming up, there's three major uh, issues, three major concepts that will remain in the book of Hebrews before he gets to the applicational section. The three main concepts have to do with the covenant, the tabernacle, and the sacrifice. And uh, then he gets into the very end of chapter 10, moving on to the rest of the book, and we have what is known as the applicational section of the book of Hebrews. And that's a portion that almost everybody loves. It's clear, it's simple, much simpler, not as theologically intense, and people love it, especially chapter 11, because chapter 11 talks about all these Old Testament saints of faith, uh, people that walk by faith and, and live by faith. And we're given a couple dozen examples there in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And so it's really, we love that chapter. And chapter 12 is, is equally wonderful and all, so forth. So we're going to get to the applicational section sometime around 2025. Well, we'll get there, I promise you. And, uh, but we will get there sooner than that. But we will keep going forward in these intense theological things because that lays the foundation for everything that's going to be applicable later. And this is a perfect example of how you should study the Bible. What far too many Christians do when they do read their Bibles is go to a a, a verse of Scripture, take it out of context, and then apply it to their lives in ways that God never intended. Uh, That's not the way to study Scripture. We study Scripture by, first of all, finding out what the passage means in its context once we determine that, once we know the interpretation of the passage, then we're ready to move forward and begin to make application to our life. We don't want to get that reversed. Uh, recently, I've read a, a couple books that's talking, for example, about the rest that we need. I mean, our, our world is in need of rest, right? And everybody wants to talk about resting. And several people I've read recently are talking about resting and going to Hebrews chapter 4 as their text to Scripture is because it speaks of rest several times. The problem is it's not talking about resting from your burden of life here and now. It's not talking about resting from your job situation or whatever. It's talking about the the Sabbath rest of God 
and the salvation that goes with that. It has nothing to do with resting this afternoon when you take a nap or when you want to get away from the anxieties of life. And so when you take Scripture out of context, you, you end up making applications that God never intended. So we get the perfect example here in the book of Hebrews. He is not shying away from the heavy stuff. Chapter 5, he got on them. He said, look, I'm ready to give the heavy stuff about the priesthood of Christ and his Melchizedekian priesthood. You're not ready for it because you're immature. And then after getting on their case, he moves ahead anyway and gives them the heavy stuff and tells them how important all this is. That's how we study scripture. That's how it was intended. And so when we come to Hebrews chapter 8, we're again looking at some heavy things here. As I said a moment ago, there's three big concepts that most of us would never say these are the big concepts that I want to know from the Bible. And yet God's Holy Spirit, through his spokesman, his writer here, is telling us there are three very important concepts that most of us probably dismiss that God says you must know if you're going to walk with him as you're intended to walk with him. And that has to do in chapter 8 with the covenant. Chapter 9, he moves forward to the tabernacle. And in chapter 10, to the sacrifice. So those are the big three that are coming up in the days ahead. So we're back to chapter 8 now. And we're looking at the issue of the covenant. He's going to introduce the covenant. Now again, this is very important because this is the most important passage in all the Bible. Certainly the New Testament, but I think all the Bible on the new covenant that God has for us. Uh, You can search all the Pauline epistles. You'll have a few remarks about it. We'll talk about that later in another sermon. You can look at the words of Jesus. You can look at all these things, but you're not going to find much about this subject. God has chosen this author of the book of Hebrews to flesh out for us what the new covenant is, what it means, and why it matters to your life. If you don't get this, you're going to miss out on something that God intended for you to have in the Christian life. And so we're going to spend three weeks on the New Covenant in chapter 8 of this passage. And we're going to start off by the first six or seven verses, which introduces the New Covenant by pointing us directly to Jesus Christ and talking about his uniqueness. And Christ is unique in both his majesty and in his ministry. And as he does that, let me say one more thing before we jump into the text. This uh, This is banking right off of what he said all the, way through the, all the way through Hebrews so far, and what we spent a lot of time on last week in chapter 7, and that is the superiority of Jesus Christ, the splendor of Jesus Christ. He is proving over and over against any rival that Jesus Christ is superior, Jesus Christ is full of splendor, Jesus Christ is magnificent, over and over and over and over he's come to these subjects. And he's doing so again today before he moves into the new covenant. And so he begins uh, by looking at the majesty of Christ, magnificence of Christ. And he says in verse 1, now the main point is in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Christ then is our superior high priest. This is what he's talking about. Far greater than any Old Testament priest. That's been the points of chapter 5, 6, and 7. The original readers of this letter were being attracted back to the Old Testament system of ritual and law and sacrifices and priesthood and so forth. He is warning them and showing them that this is a big mistake. To move back into legalistic ritualism, 
To move back from these things and back into the Old Testament system is to move away from Christ and His splendor. That's a big mistake. It's a mistake that people make over and over and over in Christianity today. Not so much going back to the Jewish system, but gravitating towards legalism. It's a natural default of the human nature to be legalistic. And he's warning us of the danger of doing that and pointing us in a direction of following the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So how do you compare Jesus Christ to anything else? This is his point. I, I I'll tick off some ridiculous comparisons very quickly so that you get the point. For example, how would you compare Michael Jordan to a third-string junior high basketball player? Not much comparison, is there? How would you compare the United States president with the president of the PTA? Not the same thing. How would you... I know, quit groaning. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. You people are bad. Okay. How, how would you compare a five-carat diamond ring with something you get out of a Cracker Jack box? Uh, how do you compare uh, any of these kinds of things to things that are far superior? And so he is saying that Jesus Christ is far superior to anything in the Old Testament system and anything actually that has ever been or ever will be. He is the supreme being of our universe. And so he says in his second statement... He says, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What's interesting here, and you might jot it down in your Bibles, is this is basically how he opened the book. In chapter 1, verse 3, he uses almost that exact same line about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the majesty. Now, it's taken him seven chapters to explain what he meant. So it's a little bit off here from the dip, from uh, distance-wise from what he started with. But now he's finally getting around to explaining what it means that he sits at the right hand of the Father of, the, maj- of the, thro- the majesty in heaven. To sit at the right hand of a monarch in ancient times was a pow- place of power and authority and position. You didn't, even to stand next to the monarch would be, be reserved only for the highest ranked people. But to be the one who is actually setting down beside that majesty would prove they're equal. You don't set down next to a king in ancient times unless you're on equal status with that king. And so by Jesus setting down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens is another way of saying that he is majestic he is full of splendor. He is equal to the Father. He is all that God is. He is God. There's no one like him. There never will be anyone like him. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. In order to really understand that better, I want to take you back to Revelation for a moment. Go back to Revelation chapter 1. Let's take a look at this splendor, this majesty of Jesus Christ in chapter 1 of Revelation. Here John is on the island of Patmos and the Lord is bringing him this great vision, this great revelation. And uh, one of the things uh, early on in this revelation was a vision of Christ himself. And I want to look at verses 12 to 18 with you, so read along with me. It says in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and as I turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden 
sash. His head and his hair were white like wool and like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face is like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I felt his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. What a splendor picture, a wonderful, beautiful of the splendor of Christ. And it's even more so when you realize that John spent three years in the presence of Jesus. He heard Jesus' sermons. He watched Jesus perform miracles. He watched Jesus in every aspect of life. He was there when he was crucified. He was there when he was resurrected. He was there when he ascended into the heavens. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration when he got a glimpse of the splendor and glory of Christ along with uh, two other of the disciples. He's seen all of that. But now when he sees Christ completely unveiled, completely in all of his splendor, in, in his full essence of what he is, what does he do? He can't believe it. It's overwhelming to him. He falls on the ground like a dead man, just like you and I would do if we saw the true splendor and the glory of Jesus Christ. We could not handle that. It's only the Lord's mercy that raises him up from that and says, I am the one who have died for you. And I will be coming again for you. I have the keys of death and Hades. There's the splendor of Jesus Christ. He's at the right hand of the Father. But there's something else I want to show you while we're in Revelation. Go all the way back to the back of the book. In chapter 19, we find him doing something different in in the book of Hebrews. And possibly in the early portion of Revelation, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. But by chapter 19, he's no longer seated. He's come off the throne and he's coming down to earth in judgment upon all those who've rejected him and all those who've rebelled against him. And we find in verse 11, for example, of chapter 19, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Now he's coming back. As he comes back, he comes back this time in judgment. He's not coming back. He's not sitting on the throne as our mediators. We'll see in a moment. At this point, he's coming in judgment against those who have rejected him. Everyone who has rejected him will face that judgment. And you do not want to be on earth. When Christ steps off his throne and steps on that horse and comes back in judgment. Stay in Revelation. Go to, go to Revelation 3. Okay? Put your finger in Revelation 3. And if you have a text, if you're doing it on your phone, I don't know where you put your finger. But, uh, I, yeah... But the rest of us, all those normal people, go back to the book of Hebrews for a second. Go back to the book of Hebrews. Look at a couple of other verses before we go back to Revelation. Okay? Hebrews chapter, we're looking at the, at the right hand of the Father. Chapter 10, verse 11. He's contrasting. He's, he's showing the difference. 
He says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time. Let me add some more words here. After time, after time, after time, after time. The same sacrifices over and over and over and over, which can never take away sins. That's the Old Testament system. It couldn't take away sins. Back it up to chapter 7, verse 27, for just a moment. Look at the contrast. It says, concerning Jesus, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Once for all, one sacrifice is over, it is done. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he didn't mean he was about to die. He meant he had done everything necessary for you and I to come to the Savior, to come to salvation, to know God, to be forgiven and saved from our sins. He's done it all. It's all complete. It's all finished. Now go back to Hebrew or Revelation 3.21 for all those that paid attention. Shouldn't be taking too long. Verse 21, here's another special benefit. Look at this. He who overcomes... It's talking about believers. I will grant to him to set wit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down on my father, uh, w- with my father on his throne. You see what he's saying? We get to set with him. Ephesians chapter 1 and 3 tells us that there's a sense in which we're already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, if Christ is in you, if you're a believer, You are already in some spiritual sense seated at the right hand of the Father and you will be forevermore seated with Him on the throne. Now if you understand that, you tell me how you understand that after church. But for right now, I know this, this is magnificent. The Lord has taken sinners who deserve hell and has seated us at the right hand of the majesty on high because we're in Him. And it doesn't get any better than that. Now we go back to Hebrews chapter 8. We see that as our high priest, he's majestic. Secondly, we see the uniqueness of his ministry in chapter 8, verse 2 to 7. The uniqueness of the ministry. As our high priest, Christ does a lot of things for us. He has two in mind. Number one, he gives us access to God. Now remember, that's one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews. We can now draw near to God. We couldn't do that before in the Old Testament system. You were barricaded from being in the presence of God. But now we can draw near to God because of Christ's ministry for us. So let's dissect this. In verse 2 he says, concerning Christ, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. So let's start off with his first statement, a minister in the sanctuary. This is almost incomprehensible. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the greatest of the great, full of splendor and majesty, ministers for us. He ministers on our behalf. Who could possibly grasp such a thing as that? You know, most people that have climbed to the top of their status, if they're world famous or whatever, they they don't want anything to do with the lower class people, you know. Uh, Greatness uh, almost always is accompanied by aloofness. Uh, You don't expect a movie star to hang out with a camera guy. Uh, You don't expect a a world-class singer, a a famous singer, 
to, to hang out with the people back on the, on the floor and go out to, to Starbucks with them. Uh, you, you don't expect a great athlete to, uh, to be good friends with the water boy. You just don't. They're aloof. They're, they're in a different class than the rest of us. Not Jesus. The greatest of the great, the most wonderful of the wonderful, wants to be our friend. He wants to be our Savior. He wants us to fellowship with Him forever and ever. And He ministers on our behalf to do that. This word minister means a public servant. In the Bible, it's always used of a servant of of God. So Jesus is a servant of God on our behalf so that we can become before Him. You might recall back in in the days just, just leading up to the crucifixion, in the upper room, remember what Jesus did? He sat at the feet of his disciples and washed their feet. Why did he do that? Well, that shows the humility of Jesus Christ. That shows the heart of the true and perfect servant. And it set an example for you and I. We go on to the rest of verse 2. He's ministering the true tabernacle. And some people get confused here. I do not believe there is a tabernacle in heaven all laid out like the Old Testament tabernacle. Some physical structure. I think he's speaking of heaven. Why do I believe that? Flip over one page to 924. And he says this. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He entered heaven. He's talking about heaven here. So Christ ministers for us in heaven, in that true tabernacle. Verse 3, going back to chapter 8. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices so that it is necessary that this high priest also has something to offer. So every high priest has something to offer. And we are really excited to find out what it is that he has to offer. But the author of this book doesn't tell us. He leaves it hanging until chapter 10. Isn't that amazing? He, 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 he's going to bounce off of this into chapter 10, and then he's going to tell us what Christ came to offer. But right here, he goes a totally different direction. And in, and in verse 4, he says, Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Now he's going backwards. I mean, he's just going back and forth here. So you've got to follow it closely. He's going backwards to chapter 7. All of chapter 7 was about the uniqueness of Christ's priesthood, remember? And how Christ could not be a high priest according to the Jewish system. Now, why is that true? He couldn't be a high priest, for first of all, because he was not from the tribe of Levi. He was not from the family of Aaron. He was from Judah and from the lineage of David. He had no right to be a high priest, and therefore he couldn't be. But he is a high priest according to the order of who? Melchizedek. Okay? Melchizedek. Who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, we've already taken care of that one. We looked at that uh, very carefully. But now we have a different order of high priesthood, and it's superior to the priesthood under the Jewish system. So he's going back here in verse 4, and he's reminding us. What does he remind us? Didn't he take care of that in chapter 7? Yeah. But that what you learned yesterday, you probably don't remember today. At least if you're like me. I've got to be reminded over and over and over. And much of Scripture is a reminder of what you already know. And intensi- intensifying what, of what you already know. 
And so he's reminding us again, Jesus has no right to be our high priest according to the old system. But he does have the right according to the system that God has set up with Melchizedek in chapter 4. And so, so we see here that this ministry that he has for us is a ministry that he set up for, for you and I that, so that we uh, can, can live forever with him and we don't have to miss out on the opportunities that he has, been, has lined up for us. And so as he goes to this, he's saying, look, if you, if you follow this Old Testament system, you're going to miss out on the true sacrifice and priesthood of Christ. And therefore, you're not going to know Christ. And what you're facing then is not that the mediator on the right hand of the Father, you're facing a judge who's going to come back. And you don't want to be there. I don't know about you, we're, we're, we're obviously past the child-rearing stage, but when we were raising our boys, uh, we noticed how often they were at their very worst when they were in the car. Any of you have that? Some of you have told me that um, when you come to church and the kids get in the back seat, the devil gets in there with them. And it seems like by the time you get to church, you're not ready to worship, you're ready to start a war, you know? And if that's the case, then, uh, you know, don't let that happen. But you know, we know what it's like. When I, we're raising our boys, they were at their worst when, they, when we got in the car because I think they knew I couldn't get to them. <laughs> so I was in, up there driving the car, and they still make fun of me all the time because I, I used to reach back and try to grab them, you know. And I got these little miniature arms, and I, I really couldn't get to them very well. So, so, but I had the final trump card was this. Do parents do this? All parents have to do this. All dads have to say this at least once. If I have to stop this car, you're not going to like it. Okay? You don't really have to finish the sentence. You don't have to tell them what you're going to do to them. Just put fear in their hearts. If I have to stop this car, I won't tell you what happened on occasion or two when I did. They would remember it differently anyway, so... But in his verse 4, he said, look, the high priest is not, our high priest is not our judge, he's our savior. If you know Christ, he doesn't, he's going to come, not in judgment for you, but he's going to come to take you to be with him forever. What a change that is. Now, he's in the heavenly tabernacle, it says here. I remember, once again, I just would mention this. As we look at his priesthood, what, what is his priesthood like? Let me, let me give you some things very quickly. What is his priesthood like? First of all, it's in the heavenly tabernacle. Revelation 21:22, just to confirm what I said earlier. Revelation 21:22 says this, The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple in heaven. He, we don't need a physical temple. He is the temple. Another thing about his priesthood, it's spiritual, not physical. Uh, there is no physical temple, and we are talking here not about uh, a place on earth, but a place in heaven. He ministers for us from heaven. It's according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the Jewish system. It's based on the one great sacrifice, not the many animal sacrifices, and it's according to a new covenant, not the old covenant of law. There's where he's headed. So we drop down to verse 5. It says, who get served as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he's about to erect the tabernacle, for, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which is shown to you on the mountain. In verse 5, he is going to a very interesting subject. 
He's talking about copies and shadows. The whole structure of the Old Testament system was that of a copy and a shadow of the reality that is found in heaven and in Christ. A a shadow and a copy. A shadow itself has no substance. Uh, But when you see a shadow, you know there's a substance attached, right? We're not like Peter Pan. Remember Peter Pan? The first part of the book, he is chasing his shadow. He lost his shadow. Has to find it. Has to reattach. That's, of course, fiction. In reality, you see a shadow, you know something is making that shadow. Those shadows might be distorted. The shadows might be taller than the real person or shorter or wider or whatever. They could be very distorted, but the shadows tell us there's a substance. There's something attached to that shadow. And he's talking about this shadow of the, of the Old Testament system pointing to the reality that Christ has for us. Now let's get philosophical, philosophical for just a moment. All of philosophy, every philosopher, every world religion, every religion of any kind is, is looking at the shadows and trying to figure out the reality. All the worldview questions is why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Who am I? Where am I going? What's the final destiny? These are the worldview questions that every religion, every philosophy tries to examine and understand. But we're chasing shadows. And that makes it extremely difficult as we chase those shadows. Plato was famously known for his, his illustration of the cave. And he had the picture of, of a, a mankind is like a man chained in a cave. And he, and, and he can't even turn around to see what's going on. But he sees by, in front of him shadows. And those shadows tell him there's some reality behind him. But he can't see it. And Plato's view was all of life is chasing after and trying to understand what the shadows are telling us about the reality of life. Something similar is being said in the Bible. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 13 that we see in a mere dimly, but one day face to face. You see, we live in the shadows in many ways. We're looking at the shadows of life. We see substance. We see these shadows that, I mean, point to a substance. And now we're trying to figure out what the substance is, is like and what it tells us. Let me give you some examples. We know of love. We see the shadow of love, but we never can get to the very, very bottom of that love, even for the ones we love the most. It's pointing to a perfect love that is found only in God himself. We see family and friends and the church, and, and we see that wonderful community of, of people and, that we love so much, and yet we, again, can never fully unravel all of that, but it points to the perfect unity we have in the Lord in all eternity as God's people gather around him. We see in this particular context the priesthood. Uh, the Old Testament priesthood was a shadow that pointed to the true priesthood that would come in Christ. The sacrificial system was a shadow, a copy of that which was to come in the perfect sacrifice that is found in Christ. And then life. Life itself is this life that we live, the existence we live, physically, spiritually, metaphysically, all this is something we can't totally unravel. The, the most brilliant minds that have ever lived is, have tried to unravel these things. Even the scriptures, read the book of Ecclesiastes, is trying to unravel these things. But where is the perfect substance of life? 
in Jesus Christ. And in him eternally, that'll be more and more unraveled for us. And so as he speaks of the priesthood of Christ, he is telling us there's a, there, we live in the shadows. The Old Testament was in the shadows, but it points to something. It points to the reality in Christ. Don't make the mistake either of, of trying to uh, th- conf- or of mis- of confusing activity for Christ with Christ himself. Don't confuse worship with Christ. Don't confuse the rituals of Christianity with Christ. Don't confuse baptism or communion with Christ. These are all things that point to Christ. Christ is our life. Paul said, everything in my life is, outside of Christ is like manure. I lay it all aside that I may know him. That's the essence of the Christian life. That's the reality of the Christian life. And so the high, our great high priest gives us access to God. We now can come to him. Secondly, he serves as our mediator. And this is where he wants to go. In verse 6, he is our mediator. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also a mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Christ not only leads us to reality, he is the only one that can. He is the mediator. He is the one that takes us who are estranged from God and have no right to his presence and takes us into the very presence of God himself. Only the mediator can do that. He's the only one that can So he's moving here uh, from a a better ministry of Christ to a better covenant. Why do we need a better covenant? Drop down to verse 7 for a moment. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Here's the problem. There's nothing wrong with the law of God, but there's a lot wrong with us. I have to take you back to Romans chapter 7. I know I'm I'm running around a little bit today, but these, these themes are so integral to the teaching of the Bible and the Christian life. Romans chapter 7, look very briefly at this verse 12. Paul's talking about the law. This is exactly what the Hebrews author is talking about. What's wrong with the law? Let's take a look. In verse 12 of chapter 7 of Romans, he says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What's wrong with the law? Absolutely nothing. It it reflects the nature of God himself. There's nothing wrong with the law itself. It's holy and righteous and good. But there's something wrong with us. Drop over to chapter 8. He talks about it then in 7. But look at chapter 8 and verse 3. For what the law could not do, no law can get you there. No law can make you holy. No law can give you the right access to God. No law can sanctify you. He says for the, but he says here, for the, what they could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. We're the weak one, not the law. God did send in his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. As the offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now here's the big problem. Go down to verse 6. He says, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Look at that. You're at war with God if you don't know Christ. You're, you're in a, a war with God. And some people are so hostile, it's obvious. They hate God. 
They hate everything to do with Christianity. They hate Jesus Christ. And they're vehemently at war with God. Hostile. We see people like that and we recognize them. But I think the scriptures would tell us that the most benevolent, kind-spirited person you ever met, someone who spends their life caring for other people and being kind and gentle, who does not know Christ, is also at war with God. They just don't know it. They're the enemy of God. They're at war with God. They're hostile towards God. And it says here in the, our passage that we, can't, that, we're, that we cannot subject ourselves to the law of God. We can't do it. And on top of that, we cannot please God. What a mess we're in. Hostile towards God. Incapable of understanding God. Incapable of pleasing God. What a mess. What hope do we have? Well, our hope is found in Christ. Verse, verse 2, for the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of spirit and death. Hey, Christ sets you free. You're no longer bound to that hostility. You now have that barrier removed. You're now in him. And that takes us back to Hebrews. Our passage of scripture, he takes off on a different understanding, a different perspective of this. And he begins to talk about this new covenant and Christ being our mediator. He's a mediator of a better covenant, verse 6, which has been enacted on better promises. Again, it wasn't the fault of the law. It was the fault of us. What God gave us was good, but we couldn't keep it. So we need a new deal, a new covenant, a new contract, a new agreement with God. And he's provided that new contract that new covenant with us so that we can have what God wants us to have. is enacted on better promises as well. You know, as we travel through life and we start looking at passages like this and the Lord keeps working on us, we begin to see we hope as we progress of all these various things of life that clutter us so that we are not focused on the greatness of Christ himself. I read once about the people in the pioneers going out west that so many of them would load up their little covered wagons with all sorts of stuff from out east. They didn't think they could leave behind. They didn't think they could live without. They had to have that. And since they couldn't rent storage units like we have all over town here, they put it all in their wagon and took it west. But I've also read that along the Oregon Trail is all sorts of, was all sorts of stuff thrown out of the wagons, left behind, because a choice came down to this. You either went west with what you think, thought you needed, or you die. If you don't want to die, you got rid of all the clutter, all the extra that you didn't really need. As we travel through the Christian life, I hope that a sign of maturity is we're recognizing the clutter. We're recognizing all this stuff that has accumulated in our life that means so much to us. And those are wonderful benefits. We thank the Lord for his gifts that he gives us. But don't let those things become what you live for. Don't let that be the clutter that controls your life. Matter of fact, if I were to offer you, and I know what your answer would be if you uh, had to speak up loud right now, but if I were to offer you $10 million or a wonderful, satisfying, vibrant life with Jesus Christ, which would you choose? I know exact both. (laughs) Jimmy, don't get that. You don't get that. No, you can't have both. You've got to choose. 
Which would you choose? Well, in the church service, after an hour or so of worshiping God and being together, we would all say, oh, we would take that vibrant life with Jesus Christ any day. But tomorrow when you're at work and things aren't going well and your car breaks down and your kids are stinky and all these things happen and you start thinking, what I could do with $10 million? Is it really needed that I have that vibrant relationship with Christ? You know, if you answer that question, you'll know where your soul is. Matter of fact, I would suggest that the uh, small groups today, the leaders of the small groups, scrap those questions I sent you because they weren't very good anyway and, and ask two questions today. Number one, right off the bat, how does the majesty and the splendor of Jesus Christ make any difference in how you live your life? How you think, how you work, how you play, how you do whatever. What difference does the majesty of Jesus Christ make? And then ask the question I just asked. If you had $10 million, not, nobody, in your, nobody in your small group is going to say what Jim just said. They're going to say, well, yeah, sure, of course I want Jesus. But so ask this question. What could $10 million give you? Talk about that. What could $10 million give you? And then ask this question. What could $10 million never give you? And then ask this question. What could Jesus Christ give you? Isn't that the essence of the Christian life? Isn't that what he's talking about here as a mediator of this marvelous covenant that he's given us? He's the mediator, the go-between, between two different worlds, between the shadows and the substance. Let me close out our message today with a quote from a Puritan by the name of Stephen Charnock, a well-known Puritan who wrote a, a giant two-volume two book on, the, on the, uh, God himself. He says this, kind of depressing, so hang in there. You want to be depressed? Uh, No, you don't. And I'll finish it off better. But here's what he said. Life is a flower soon withered, a vapor soon vanishing, or smoke soon disappearing. The strongest of man is but compacted dust. Yikes, that's not very happy, is it? Okay? Live for the shadows, and that is your life. You're compacted dust. And one day you return to the ground. Live for the substance, Jesus Christ, and everything changes because he is the mediator of something better, something unique, something he calls a new covenant that you can't live without. You're going to have to live without the explanation until next Sunday. But you can get a jump on it yourself. But you need what he's talking about here. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for the wonders of yourself the glories of your Son, the, the greatness of what you've given us and what you uh, have offered to all people who will accept you. Lord, I pray today that all of us take this very seriously, look deep into our own hearts at how we live and honor you, and that we might make you, Lord, the absolute joy and splendor and majesty of our everyday walk. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.